Hello, we're, we're here today with William Schultz, who studies clinical psychology, and I had the pleasure to meet him at a couple of philosophy conferences, and I feel very fortunate that we're going to talk to him today because he wrote a very interesting research paper on a set of ideas called neuroessentialism. In our previous episodes, we've been discussing the power of ideas in shaping who we are and how we experience the world. So are we just biology, or is it our environment that shapes us? Uh, do we have some choice in the person we become? William is going to be talking to us about this paper that he wrote in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, and it's about the idea that there's a definitive way of explaining psychological experiences by reference to the brain and its activities. In his article, he mirrors headlines such as, this is your brain on love, or God, or envy, or happiness. So any of those ideas come from this idea of neuroessentialism. And we know there's a fascination in explaining negative experiences such as depression or drug addiction by uh, being a chemical imbalance of the brain. We thought it would be interesting to talk to William because he works in clinical psychology to see how effective this idea is in clinical psychology. He argues in his article that a brain-centered model of mental disorders can have a negative psychological effect on people, and instead that those receiving mental health treatment can be very powerfully affected by ideas. He's completing his doctoral degree in clinical psychology at the Minnesota School of Professional Psychology. His clinical work is based on person center and cognitive behavioral therapy, and his research focuses on the relationship between biology and mental health, including the relationship between neurotransmitters in the brain and depression, the relationship between brain function and structure and mental disorders, problems associated with overemphasizing biological causes of mental disorders, the importance of non-medication-based inter interventions for children experiencing emotional and behavioral problems, and the relationship between women's experiences and understandings of depression and social issues. So this relationship between biology and mental health is especially important to William because of his own experience with severe anxiety and the way that he used his ideas in order to recover from it. He discovered that ideas are very, very powerful that way. He said that philosophy saved his life. I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. So, William, thanks so much for being here today. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Why did you write this paper? Well, thanks for having me, Marcia. It's really fun for me to be here discussing this with you. This paper built on previous research that I published on the chemical imbalance explanation of depression. So let me just give a brief description of what that explanation of depression looks like. It would have been in about 1996 that I, uh, and I was just in junior high at the time, when I saw my first antidepressant commercial and this is a, is a very famous commercial for Zoloft, which has basically this little blob bouncing around the screen, and he's got a frowny face, and he bumps into other blobs who are all happy, and he's wondering, why am I, why do I have this frown? Why do I feel so blue? And then the commercial jumps to a simplified uh, depiction of neurons uh, communicating with one another 
and in the depressed version of the neurons communicating to one another, the there's just one little bubble of serotonin that looks like it's really struggling to get from one neuron to the other. And then the other picture where Zoloft is active, you see just a dance of serotonin. There's you know 25 little circles of serotonin and they all look very as happy as a little circle can look. And what, what's is, serotonin? What's the, what's the significance of that? And what the significance is, is what the voiceover then says is, research suggests that depression may be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. And in this case, the chemical imbalance is a deficiency of serotonin. And what serotonin does is it, it increases the serotonin available um, in the synapse. So my research, my first published article was on this theory of depression. And when I was doing research for that paper, I bumped into a very interesting article by Kemp, was the lead author, where they were exploring possible psychological effects of individuals attributing their depression to a chemical imbalance. And so after I finished publishing that article on the chemical imbalance, I moved on to this article, which was an extension of that research. So my position was now not only is there little evidence that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance, which was my first article, uh, now it's that explaining your depression in this way also can have some negative clinical impacts. And that, that's the long story short of where this article came from. I see. And let me see if I understand things correctly. So in the Zoloft commercial... It seems to imply that you need to have a good amount of serotonin in order to be at a normal emotional level and not depressed. Is that what that meant? Mm, something along those lines. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. And so you were very interested in the fact that it turned out that the effects of these drugs were not necessarily mirrored by actual reduction in depression. Is that correct? Well, that's basically correct. The long story short is... What we know now is that when these drugs are tested in clinical trials and compared to placebos, the drugs don't perform much better than the placebos do. Okay. So we're getting a little bit of an idea of the kind of thing you're working on. And right. so you ended up writing this paper, uh, which I kind of titled Neuroessentialism or How You Are Your Brain. And um, maybe you could explain for the listeners a little more, what is neuroessentialism? You have in your paper a definition that says, it explains psychological experience by reference to the brain and its activities. Quote, for all intents and purposes, we are our brains. Mental processes are identical to or exclusively reducible to brain processes. You quoted a researcher named Reiner. <clears throat> Quote, all mental processes take place in brain tissue. Therefore, mental disorders must be brain disorders. We are our brains. Mm -hmm. So, right. for, like you said, you said if someone is experiencing depression, a neuroessentialistic view says that he or she is experiencing the depression because his brain is functioning in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate on that for us? Yeah. Uh, so the... The transition from my previous work to this work comes from two complementary directions. 
The first is a recognition of a cultural phenomenon that I see all the time. In fact, I saw it just this morning where someone that I knew on social media was suggesting that perhaps the reason that he was a comedian or the reason that he finds certain things funny are because he is, is genetically predisposed or his brain is in a particular way to do that. That type of thing is really common. And that's why I use those examples at the beginning of this article saying, you know, headlines or news articles, and they have these very colorful images of a brain. And they'll say, look, this is your brain when you're seeing someone that you love. And the general trend seems to be, well, we had a, a folk psychological explanation of why we feel this way for someone, which we would use explanatory concepts like just love or happiness and concepts like that. And a real understanding, the fundamental reason why we behave or feel or think how we do is because our brain is structured in a particular way. So the, the essential reason is because of our brain. So that's mm -hmm. why it's neuroessentialism. Exactly. And so those higher level concepts we might use that invoke beliefs and feelings might be useful for a crude way of thinking about things. But if we really want to be scientific, then we're going to use brain-based language. The, so the natural sciences, biology, chemistry, maybe one day physics. And that's how we're going to really refine our understanding of the real causes that are going on that contribute to our experiences. The second reason is really it's related to clinical psychology itself. And a brief explanation of that is... In clinical psychology, clinical work is really dominated by the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And the DSM has a list of all the different diagnoses that can be given. And if you're working in clinical psychology and you're accepting insurance as payment from clients, you have to give them a diagnosis because the insurance company is not going to give you money if you're seeing someone who doesn't have a clinically diagnosable situation. So the DSM is very important. And when the DSM-5 was published in 2013, there were many people who were very, very disappointed when it came out. And one of the reasons for that disappointment was there had been a lot of hope that the DSM would begin to, at the least, tie in biological tests in the diagnosis of mental disorders like depression or generalized anxiety, and it didn't. And the reason that it didn't is because they were unable to make clinically actionable tests. So despite the fact that they've spent billions of dollars in research trying to come up with biological markers for mental disorders like schizophrenia or depression or anxiety, none of those markers have the specificity and the reliability that would enable us to, in a clinical way, have someone coming to see us go get this test and that would assist in the diagnosis of depression or anxiety. Now, this is where it connects to my article because the National Institute of Mental Health went right before the DSM-5 was published, said, okay, we're done with the DSM. We're not gonna use that anymore to guide our research because it hasn't given us any results. 
And by results, what they meant is it hasn't given us any clinically actionable biomarkers. And so in place of the DSM-5, they've launched the Research Domain Criteria Project. And the central assumption of that project, which is now more or less the federally endorsed view of mental disorders, is that mental disorders are disordered brain circuits. So if you're experiencing a mental disorder, the reason you're having that mental disorder is because your brain is malfunctioning. So wait, let me get this straight. The National Institute of Mental Health wanted the DSM to reflect the idea that the brain explained mental disorders, but the researchers couldn't find laboratory tests or x-rays or any other biological ways of showing the relationship between the brain and mental disorders. So there was no physiological specificity about it. So they couldn't put that into the DSM. And because they couldn't put it into the DSM, then the National Institute of Mental Health said, well, we don't like that because we want to explain things by a biological way. And so we're not going to use you anymore. We're going to have our own criteria. Right. So two points there. The first is the DSM is a publication that's produced by the American Psychiatric Association, which, ah, is, okay. which is not a federal institution. It's just a private organization. The, okay. the National Institute of Mental Health, of course, is a government organization. So that's the first distinction. The second distinction is the National Institute of Mental Health is not saying, oh, well, let's just throw the DSM-5 out. They recognize that that's the book that clinicians are going to use in clinical practice. What they're saying is, from now on, we are not going to tie our funding of research to ah. diagnostic classifications that are rooted in the DSM-5 framework. Instead, they will provide funding for individuals who structure their research in a rubric that they list out, which is much more generic. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. So you mentioned three reasons why neuroessentialism had gotten so popular as an explanation. Reductionism, materialism, the desire to combat stigma, and the market for psychotropic drugs. Is right. this related to that? Well, <laughs> that, that is a question that I have some intuitions about. But to actually draw the connections in a confident way where I would want to give some sort of definitiveness to my evaluations, I'm not in a position to do, but I can give you my general impressions. So in other words, that would be a political conclusion you're coming to, right? Um, yeah, I, something along those lines. So I don't mm -hmm. know, for instance, how intertwined individuals at the National Institute of Mental Health are with, for instance, the pharmaceutical industry. Now, we, we do know quite a bit of the general level of the connections, which they're quite intertangled. But I wouldn't want to say of the individuals that are directing research at the National, at National Institute of Mental Health, well, they're doing this because they want the pharmaceutical industries to be able to make some money. Um, I, I just don't know that. And at the same time, you can't work in clinical psychology without brushing up against how powerful of an influence pharmaceutical companies are. So that's one point. And the second point is, it does seem apparent that there is some form of reductionist thinking involved in driving 
the RDOC, which is the Research Domain Criteria Project, the alternative to the DSM. So there, it, there's, some, there's some set of, of assumptions, philosophic assumptions, about what mental disorders are that contributes to them wanting to go further down this path of research. Just to summarize, so you said in your paper that you think there's these three reasons why neuroessentialism has gotten so popular. One is reductionism, one is a desire to combat stigma, and one is the market for psychotropic drugs. Can you explain those very briefly? Because then I want you to talk about reductive materialism and the way it influences the thinking. Yeah. So I'll start with stigma. One of the nice effects or the purportedly nice effects of a neuroessentialistic approach to mental disorders is seen, I think, in cartoons that are popular on the internet where it's a cartoon that illustrates someone who has their arm chopped off and then there's another little stick figure next to them saying, just think positive. Just think positive about your arm being chopped off. And then the, the, the moral of this story is depression or anxiety is not something that you can fix just by thinking positively. And the reason that you can't is because it's, it's a biological illness just like any other biological problem. The way in which this approach may combat stigma is it decreases the level of personal responsibility or moral agency that's implied in someone experiencing depression. So many people who experience mental disorders experience a significant level of shame around the mental disorder by pointing out or suggesting, look, this isn't your fault. You don't need to feel ashamed for this. The reason that you're experiencing this mental disorder is because you have a brain disease. Evidence has shown that this decreases levels of personal responsibility, perceived levels of personal responsibilities for the development of the disorder. And that can be a clinically useful tool. And so that's a prime driver of emphasizing this approach. The idea is that we can have a kinder and more gentle disposition towards individuals who are experiencing these disorders because it's not their fault. It's just something that happened to them. This would be contrasted to approach that says, look, you're depressed right now and you need to fix it. It's your responsibility. So pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to toughen up. You need to change what you're doing or change how you're thinking. And that does seem to place a different type of responsibility on someone than an approach that says, well, you're experiencing this because you have a chemical imbalance. It's not your fault. Let's get you some medication. Mm -hmm, Sure. Well, I think of uh, the history of autism and how in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was being blamed on the mother. And there's almost a 180-degree turn away from that. And it's now thought to be almost entirely physiological. Right. So the stigma has been taken away from them. I mean, the mothers were, were stigmatized terribly because of it. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying that, okay, they want to do the same thing with depression. Right. They want to take away that. That's a great example. And what about, what do you mean by reductive materialism? And how is that influencing the way the scientists approaching this are thinking? Mm-hmm. So I think that the best way for me to explain what I mean by reductive materialism, because I think that means different things to different philosophers in a technical sense. When I use it as it relates to clinical psychology or psychiatry, this is a story that I can use to explain it. 
So the story begins with a psychiatrist who's working as the on-duty mental health clinician at a hospital. And she is working and, you know, it's two in the morning and a family brings in their daughter who's, let's say, you know, 26. And the family reports, you know, wow, over the past month, her behavior has changed entirely. She's having grandiose delusions. We've never seen this type of emotional dysregulation in her. We don't know what's going on. Can you please help us? And when the psychiatrist hears, okay, emotional changes, dysregulation, erratic behavior, grandiose delusions, the psychiatrist, being a psychiatrist, thinks to herself, okay, so this could be the onset of some type of psychotic experience. So the type of thing that may suggest a diagnosis of schizophrenia or one of the disorders related to schizophrenia. However, the young woman being brought in is also experiencing some other symptoms, some blurry vision, extreme muscle tension, um, urinary incontinence, and she's not really sure what to, to make of those symptoms. So she just has a battery of tests done. But, you know, she's thinking, okay, so this, this woman probably is, is in a psychotic state, and we'll, we'll get to during the process of her treatment, which will involve probably medication and perhaps some therapy, We'll try and get to the bottom of, of what's going on. So the lab tests come back, and it turns out that this woman, no, this woman doesn't have schizophrenia. She, she has a, an infection of syphilis that's reached her brain. And um, when syphilis reaches the brain, you can have grandiose delusions, and you can have erratic behavior, and you can also have all those other physical symptoms. And because of those lab tests, the intervention that's suggested is, well, antibiotics. We're going to give this woman a course of antibiotics. What we're most certainly not going to do is put this woman into psychotherapy to treat her neurosyphilis because that's going to have absolutely no effect whatsoever on the bacteria that's infecting her brain. So they put the woman on an eight-week course of antibiotics, and she may have some permanent damage in her brain based on how severe the infection was, but those antibiotics are going to clear up the infection, her symptoms are going to go away, and so reductive materialism is something along the lines of the reason that this woman was experiencing grandiose delusions is because she had a bacterial infection in her brain. It has nothing to do with her family, it has nothing to do with her beliefs, it has nothing to do with her attitude, and it has everything to do with the way that her brain is structured and functioning. And so you're saying in your paper that psychologists and psychiatrists are taking that idea and applying it to all mental disorders. That's one of the underlying ideas of the RDOC, which is the reason that you're experiencing depression is because your brain circuits are malfunctioning. So the reason she had grandiose delusions is because she has a brain pathology of a particular type. Just extend the analogy. The reason you're depressed is because your brain is this way. The reason you're anxious is because your brain is this way. Mm -hmm. Can you go over some of the philosophical considerations of neuroessentialism that you raise in your article? I think that's related to the, these ideas, right? Right. For example, can you help us understand what counts as an explanation under these ideas? Right. So in the case of this woman being brought into the ER, 
the explanation for her grandiose delusions uh, are the bacterial infection of her brain. However, note the distinction that exists between the way in which that clinical situation played itself out and the way that the DSM-5 is currently structured. There are no lab tests that we can do for depression. You can't get tested to see if you have a chemical imbalance or tested to see if there's some type of abnormality in the structure of your brain or in your blood that contributes to your depression. So what that suggests is that perhaps there's other forms or other contributors that are playing a part in someone experiencing their depression. And the first way that I try and describe this phenomenon in my paper is by doing a bit more of a refined look at the way in which philosophers have looked at the idea of an explanation. And the best example that I found so far is an example that I took from a philosopher named Dretsky in a 2004 article he wrote. And this might not be exactly how he wrote it, but it's how I explain his, his, uh, his story. So the story goes something like this. For whatever reason, a government body is interested in understanding why a particular type of flower changes from the color red to white in the springtime. And they want an explanation for why this occurs. So they contact some botanists and some chemists, and they say, look, we want to know the explanation for why this flower changes from red to white. Could you tell us how it happens? And so the botanists and the chemists get together and they take samples of the flower and they put it under microscopes and they do analysis of the structure of the flower and pigment and they they come up with the explanation the way in which the petals of the flower turn from red to white and then they they submit their report to the government and they say well this is the exhaustive explanation of how it is that this flower changes color and the government takes it and they say, thank you very much. And they have a consultant there who's overviewing the work. And the consultant looks at the work and he says, well, that's part of an explanation, but you're actually missing out on the essential reason, the essential explanation of why this flower turns from red to white during the spring. And the reason is, in the springtime, the entire area gets saturated with this type of beetle. And this beetle will eat every type of plant that it can find that's red. But for one reason or another, the beetle just doesn't even begin to eat white flowers. So the explanation for why these flowers change from red to white is really just from evolution. Like it's, a, it's an advantageous adaptation that the flower has embodied to avoid being eaten by beetles. And that is the explanation. So the point that I'm trying to draw from that is what counts as an explanation for a change depends on the level of the analysis that you're using. I don't think that those two explanations conflict with one another. They both enrich our understanding of why or what the explanation is of this flower changing color. 
And so I could imagine a similar approach being applied to mental disorders, which is to say, there's not really a part of me that thinks that more and more understanding of the way in which the brain is functioning is going to detract from our understanding of mental disorders. But it's, it's one thing to entirely focus on how the brain is functioning in the same way that the initial government report entirely focused on the chemical structure and the pigment of the flower. And it's another thing to consider how it is that those, those changes which are inside the flower relates to the system that the flower is incorporated within. And it seems to me that excluding that more comprehensive level of analysis, which provides a more comprehensive explanation, is dangerous. Yeah, let me see if I can understand it in relationship to the psychological realm. So you're saying with the explanation of the flower, there's one level of explanation that's about the chemical and physical changes that occur within the flower. But however, there's another level of explanation about why the color changes rather than how it changes. Mm-hmm. And the why is an evolutionary explanation. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to draw the parallel to the neuroessentialism point of view. And it seems to me that in the neuroessentialism point of view, they're arguing that all of the psychological effects that you see are only caused by physical effects in the brain. But it turns out that in clinical practice, you find out that there is a kind of downward causation from the ideas that people hold. So from what you said in your paper, if they have the idea, for example, that they're not in control at all of their depression, that it's entirely physical, then they actually get worse. Mm -hmm. But if they have the idea that they can affect change by changing their ideas and changing their actions, then they can get better. Mm -hmm. There's been some research which has indicated that the brains of children who have been diagnosed with ADHD are, are different. It's not clinically actionable, but some suggestive research. And at the same time, there's been some research that suggests that, well, children from disruptive, dysregulated households are more commonly diagnosed with ADHD. And the way of integrating those is to say, well, yeah, one way of explaining why this child has ADHD is to say that he has a a malfunctioning brain. And another way to explain it is to say, well, no, his brain is reacting exactly as you would expect something to react in an environment that's uh, very turbulent. And that is the same sort of explanation that's indicated by research, which shows that there's a large spike in depression when there's an economic downturn. There's no research that would suggest, oh, yes, because we have a spike in chemical imbalances in brains when there's an economic downturn. Not, no, that's not what it is. What, what we do have is people experiencing more difficult financial circumstances, which contribute to stress, which contributes to symptoms of depression. Does that make sense, Marcia? Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because what I keep thinking about, well, the idea that's left out of this discussion when you think of everything psychological as neuroessentialistic is the idea of mind. They don't talk about mind at all. They just talk about brain. And yet we have this concept of mind that refers to our psychological experiences. And so, you know, in your view, what's, what's the relationship between mind and brain? 
Mm-hmm. And how do, how do you think of it? Yeah. So I don't know if I have a particularly sophisticated way of thinking about the difference between mind and brain. When I think of mind, I think of the components of our experience that we can draw upon subjectively. So beliefs, emotions, and behaviors to a certain extent. And when I think of brain, I think of the actual ways in which our brain works. For instance, the way in which neurons manifest action potentials to begin the process of communicating with one another. I I don't recall ever ever told my brain, I need some action potentials now to get this done. (laughs) I just sort of do. And I hope that my brain is going to function in the way that enables me to do that. Another distinction that I've used before, and I don't know how good of a distinction it is, is a distinction between hardware and software. So the hardware of my experience is my brain, just like the hardware of the computer that I have in front of me is, let's say, the hard drive and the memory and the computer processor. And those components are required for me to have a software experience. So a subjective experience, a mind experience. And one of the things that's appealing about that way of looking at things is that if someone were to bring a sledgehammer into my living room right now and smash my computer, I would no longer be able to have a software experience. But that wouldn't be because the programming was bad. It would be because, well, now my hard drive doesn't spin. At the same time, if I get a computer virus in my software, it doesn't actually affect the hardware in a way that's bad. My hardware is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. But there's a programming problem that's interfering with my computer functioning how I'd like it to function. And so from one perspective in clinical psychology, mental disorders are best understood as software problems. So you have some beliefs or some programming that's not functioning in a way that's conducive toward your goals. And it's not a problem with your hard drive. Your hard drive's just fine. It's that you're getting caught in loops that are getting in the way of your moving forward towards your goals. Now, the, the neuroessentialistic point of view says something along the lines of, well, but in the end, all software manifests on top of a hardware platform. So if you get a computer virus in your software, What you really have is a hard drive and a central processing unit and memory that are functioning in a particular way. And so what we need to do is understand how those are functioning and then come up with a way to actually fix those hardware components, whatever that means, to make a difference. One challenge with that is if you get a computer virus that's disabling your software, Nobody is going to suggest that you pull the hard drive out of your computer, put it under a microscope, and try and actually fix the little physical portions of the hard drive to get rid of the virus. That's, that's not going to work. You might need to reformat your hard drive, but once again, all you're doing is wiping the programming. You're wiping the software. The hard drive itself is still working just fine. It's just given a bad set of instructions. It's interesting, that analogy, because when you're reformatting the hard drive, you are changing it physically. Mm -hmm. But what I hear you saying is that 
the physical explanation for many disorders is necessary but not sufficient to right. explain what the difference is. Where example, in, in your example of the syphilis case, you could say that the physical situation was sufficient to explain her mental situation. Yes. But in, there's many disorders in which it's not sufficient, and so we have to go to a different level of causation. We can't say it's just because the chemicals aren't balancing right, or it's, it's just because the neurons aren't firing right, or it's just because the neurons aren't wired right. Of course, since we are physical beings, any change that happens in our mind has to have some kind of parallel in our physical being. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that every change that it's caused by, that the causation is only from the physical to the mental. It seems to me you're saying that some of the causation is from the mental to the physical. In other words, that a person who has certain ideas or outlooks or ways of doing things that are in their mind, it can actually affect themselves physically. So that's like a downward causation from mind to brain. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So so I'll say two things about that. One is brief and the other is a bit more directly related to, to clinical work. Um, this is an explanation that I've used to describe downward causation in a way that might be a bit more appetizing to sort of physically oriented thinkers or materialistically oriented thinkers. So there was a study, and it was a small study, so exactly how much you'd want to infer from it is, is questionable, but I think that it illustrates the point where they took a group of people who regularly drank coffee, and they did uh, neuroimaging of their, uh, of their brain, and they took blood tests of, of them to identify some concrete biological markers of what happens when they drink coffee, when they get this caffeine. And so they were able to identify some significant changes that occur when they take caffeine. And then what they did is they told this group of people that you have a 50% chance of being given caffeine and we're going to see what happens inside of you. And unbeknownst to them, none of them were given caffeine. They were all given placebo. And they were able to identify very similar changes in their physiology after they were administered the placebo. So that is a way of trying to illustrate the power of downward causation in the sense that it was because of a set of beliefs and expectancies that they had about receiving caffeine that their physiology changed in a measurable way that doesn't seem to be explained in any other way over and beyond their belief that they were about to get caffeine. So there's downward causation for you. Moving on to the second clinical approach, um, maybe this would be a good way of illustrating it. So some individuals who experience severe social anxiety, they're very hesitant to go out and meet new people. And one of the things that clinical psychology has been able to identify is many people who experience this sort of severe anxiety related to being involved in social situations, they have a set of beliefs that seem to be operate almost automatically for them, their habits. And the belief may be something on the lines of they'll get involved in a conversation with someone and someone may just look across the room to see who it is that entered the door. Now, one person might experience that glance away as, oh, they're curious as to who just came in the door. A socially anxious person might think to themselves, 
they just looked at the door because what I'm saying to them is totally uninteresting. And the reason what I'm saying to them is totally uninteresting is because I'm totally uninteresting. And you know what? I don't really think much of myself since I'm totally uninteresting. I'm kind of a, I'm worthless as a person. And being in this social situation reminds me of that worthlessness. And I'd rather not experience that reminder. Now, it's not as if someone in those situations explicitly and intentionally conjures up those thoughts. They just happen automatically. And then cognitive behavioral therapy would be a combination of identifying those thoughts and then exposing them to those situations and doing that again and again until they create a new set of thoughts and a new set of behaviors. And then the, the underlying thought there is it wouldn't be surprising if we could identify some underlying biological correlates of those thoughts that I'm worthless and I don't want to be here anymore and the types of depressed mood that might pop up in relationship to that. The point is we don't necessarily need to give them a medication to change their biological state from the bottom up. Instead, we can work from a top-down perspective and say, what are the types of thoughts that you have that influence the way that you're feeling and the way that you behave? And by changing those thoughts that you have, we can change the way that you feel and the way that you behave from a psychological point moving downward. This is a great example of how downward causation can work and how you can change things clinically to make a, a difference in the person's actual physiology. What is the neuroessentialist's position on free will? And by that, I mean the ability to control some aspects of thought and action. Do they totally toss that out the window? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I could imagine there being different views on that. So there's at least two ways of thinking about subjective experience or free will as an emergent phenomenon. So I'll try and give my understanding of those two ways, and then maybe we can roll with that. So the first way, which is popular in clinical psychology, prominent researchers have advocated a position something like this, is an epistemological emergence of psychological experience or free will. And from this point of view, they can be agnostic on whether or not these bottom-up forms of causation are ultimately the drivers of experience or of free will. Who knows, they'll say. What we know right now is that we can find reliable and useful data by using psychological concepts that we are still tentative about their relationship to the underlying physiology, even though we recognize some kind of connection to that underlying physiology. Wait, this is what the neuroessentialists say, their position? Well, what I'm saying is, is they, this is the first of two available options. So this is the milder conclusion. The more fundamental conclusion would be something which would be an ontological emergence. Epistemological emergence is what I've seen most common in the literature. And it seems to me that the reason that that's appealing to psychological researchers is 
it allows them to maintain a stance which is congruent with materialism while not insisting that we find reductive explanations. Because it's a kind of a pragmatic point of view, well, we know that these ideas work. And yes. so we'll just continue using them. It, exactly. And because you're referring to ideas, that's why it's called an epistemological stance? Right. Okay. And so what I think is a, a bit more of well, it's less common in the literature, at least, it would be an ontological emergence, which says, well, no, there's something that's fundamentally different, fundamentally unexplainable from a lower level of causation uh, that is involved in understanding psychological experience. So the one of the ways that I try and tap into that sort of challenge uh, in the article is an example that I borrowed from Noe, who's a philosopher and a neuroscientist. And he, is, tr he tries to illustrate this by a similar set of circumstances. And the government asks some physicists, because after all, physicists are the scientists who are exploring what's really real about the universe, to find the value of a dollar. And so what the physicists do is they take the dollar and they put it under their best microscopes. Maybe they even take a dollar and somehow throw it into a particle accelerator and they try and find the value of the dollar. And they find all kinds of data about what's physically involved in a dollar bill. And then they have to go back to the government and say, well, we, we just can't find the value of a dollar in here. And Noe's point is, well, yeah, because the value of a dollar will never be understood by looking at the physical constituents of a dollar. It can only be understood by understanding the way in which that little piece of paper interacts with a whole host of other variables that manifests or emerges as the value of a dollar. And so this is, a par this is parallel to explaining the emergence of mind out of the physical substrate of brain. Right. That's what you're saying. Okay. Th but you're saying there are some neuroessentialists who believe in that position, that the mind is an emergent property? Uh, no, I don't think neuroessentialists would believe that. I think that at the end of the day, many of them would argue for some type of reductionism. So that position, that there's a genuinely new emergent property that relies on lower level forms of interaction but cannot be explained by those lower level forms, that's not something I've seen a lot in the psychological literature over and beyond reference to the fact that that is what the debate around emergence is. But mm -hmm. the ins and outs of that debate, I mean, clinical psychologists don't really do that because that's not their area of specialization. That, that's where philosophers come in. Sure, sure. I mean, to me, in a certain way, the emergent property position is obvious even in the physical area. Because, for example, hydrogen, two hydrogens and an oxygen have different properties when they're separate than when they're combined as water. So even in the physical area, you have the emergence of properties when you have different combinations of things. And uh, it seems to me that what we're saying is, okay, when you have a certain kind of brain and body, a human brain and body, you have a new physical situation in which this emergent property of mind occurs. Yeah, when I hear that, I hear something along the lines of, you know, 
if I put some some kindling into a room and then I increase the temperature of that room to a particular level, that kindling will begin burning. And it's, it's not as if fire is a part of the kindling. Uh, at the same time, it is, if I'm understanding how fire works, it, it is because the kindling has particular physical features that when the room is raised to a sufficient temperature, it begins to burn. And so the contrast to that would be put a bucket of water in the same room and it will not start burning. It will boil, but it won't burn. And the reason that it won't burn is because of the physical properties that it possesses. Yes. Um, it's that somehow related to some of the properties being emergent. Well, I guess in for, other words, as a result of the combinations. Yeah, it's a result. So it's the result of the combination between the physical entity itself and the conditions in which that physical entity finds itself. So for me, I don't even know where to begin thinking about. You know, when you combine hydrogen and oxygen, and you and you get water, is water an emergent property? I I don't even know if I know what that means. What I believe that water exists, and although I've never investigated for myself, I trust the experts who tell me that water is actually just a combination of hydrogen and oxygen. My assumption would be that the reason that hydrogen and oxygen couple how they do to form water is explained by the physical nature of those molecules. And it is true that just by looking at oxygen or just by looking at hydrogen, I don't know if you'd be able to infer that, oh, yes, this could turn into water somehow. It might be only after the fact that we then look backwards and say, oh, you know, what is it about hydrogen and oxygen that allow them to couple and turn into water? But as far as that being an emergent property, I, I'm not really sure what that means. I actually meant something different. Not that water itself is an emergent property, but that the things water can do are emergent properties. So, for example, hydrogen by itself exists as a gas, and oxygen by itself exists as a gas. Mm. And yet, when you combine them into the molecule of water, they can exist as a liquid and a solid Yeah. at uh, normal temperatures. Right. And that water has the ability to expand when it freezes, unlike other, other solids, which tend to contract when it freezes. And that seems to be uh, a property that emerges when you get hydrogen and oxygen together in this format. Mm. So would it be a similar thing to say that when you combine a collection of kindling with a room that reaches a sufficient temperature, the flame is a property that emerges from the kindling because the kindling is now transformed into a gas? I don't, I'd have to think about that example because I don't know if I'd say that doing that is a inherent feature of the kindling. Like the fact that expanding when it's frozen is an inherent feature of water. I, so I'm just not sure if it's a parallel example or not. Mm. I, I see what you mean. It seems like there's another level of uh, when water expands, you've already combined the hydrogen and the oxygen, and now there's a new feature of the water that it expands when it when it freezes exactly. as opposed to other things. Where right. it, so for the analogy to hold between kindling and heat, you would need to be able to identify some special property of the gas that's released when kindling burns 
that it does this particular thing instead of what other gases typically do when it burns. Mm-hmm. Something like that. I'd have to I'd have to think about it more. Well, Marsha, let me ask you this. If we take this water analogy and roll with it into the way in which it may be something important to keep in mind as we think about our own psychological experience, how do you see that idea being something that can be empowering or useful as we go about our lives? Well, the reason I think that it's important is that it's a way to explain why human beings have the power of determining what they think and what they do, so that they're not totally uh, determined just by their physical self. That when you put together a body of a certain kind and it becomes a human being, then this property, this ability to direct thought and action emerges from Mm. this new combination. And that has downward causation um, effects. So that, for example, if you are thinking a different way, for example, in your example with depression or uh, social anxiety, if you realize that you can change your mind about the way that you're thinking and you can become conscious of these patterns of thought that you're having that are leading you to have so much anxiety and that you can change them, then you can have this downward causation and change your emotional state. Mm -hmm, I see. And that that connects nicely with the essential point of my neuroessentialism article, which is if someone experiencing depression thinks that I'm experiencing this depression because of a set of variables over which I have no control, that can contribute, and what the research indicates that it does contribute to, is an increase in prognostic pessimism. So they think that they're less likely to get better. And what we also know from the research is that your expectancy to improve, your expectancy to get better, is an important driver of actually getting better. And thus, when you think that you don't have chances of getting better, you will get less better. And what I hear you saying is, well, if you could communicate to someone look, yeah, you're a biological being, but you have some control in a what would essentially be a downward causation. You have some control over those biological properties via your thinking. That could be an enormously empowering idea for someone to hold. Well, especially if somebody has gotten the idea that all scientific explanation requires that you explain by saying that it's your physical and chemical side that determines everything. Mm -hmm. If they've taken that reductionist position seriously and they think that the only way to be scientific is to think that, then they end up with the situation you were talking about, which is they feel totally unable to change their situation and they feel like they just have to accept the fact that they're going to be depressed because of their biology. Mm -hmm. So... What I'm saying is that there, I think there's another and perfectly scientific way to think about why we're able to have some control over what goes on in our life. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we don't have control over everything. I mean, I can't, <laughs> right. I can't make myself any taller. You know, I suppose I, I suppose I could if I had one of those operations where they cut your leg bones and then they put you in these kind of stretchers and they stretch your leg apart until it fills in and then I could become taller. I mean, I guess that's a way of doing it. But in a normal sense, I can't get any taller. 
but there are certain things that I have control over, and they have to do with ideas that I'm thinking, what I pay attention to, and then what do I do with those ideas in terms of how I act. Yeah, and the analogy here would be loosely that in the same way that you can't make yourself taller, the unfortunate woman that was brought into the ER room um, with grandiose delusions is not going to be able to think herself out of the bacterial infection in her brain. Now, maybe at some point in time, there will be some sort of thinking process that could make that happen. I don't know what that would look like. But our current understanding seems to be, no, if you have a bacterial infection, you're going to need antibiotics to fight it off, or your immune system is going to be fighting off in some way. The point is, your thinking isn't going to be playing a role in changing that in a way that your thinking might play a role in identifying and challenging some of the thoughts that are involved in, for instance, something like depression. Right, right. And the fact of the matter is that, yes, each one of us are born with a certain physiology, brain construction, certain physiological tendencies. And so somebody may be born with certain kinds of physiology that lends itself to thinking in certain kinds of thinking patterns. For example, I was thinking in the case of people with social anxiety, because I know quite a few people my own personal life, who are very, very empathetic people. They easily are aware of what other people are feeling. And it makes them have a hard time being in a social situation too much. They have to retreat from that because they're so aware of other people's feelings that it tends to be exhausting after a while. So they have to retreat from that and have their alone time. And I don't know if just thinking about the fact that they have this experience of empathy and being aware of other people's feelings is something that they could actually ever change in themselves because it seems to be something that what, what I've noticed that they've had since they were little teeny tiny babies, but they can become more aware of the fact that they have this experience and then figure out ways to redirect their thinking or control their physical circumstances in their social interaction, how much they go to parties or something like that to deal with this situation and just be more conscious of it so they don't have that sense of overwhelmedness. And I was thinking that maybe, you know, in your example of social anxiety, it sounds like somebody who's really aware of what other people are feeling and thinking, and they're paying a lot of attention to that. Yeah. And the thought that occurred to me when you gave that example was, the difference between the view that I'm suggesting in my article and the neuroessentialism view is there tends to be a type of fatalistic thinking implied in the neuroessentialist point of view, which says, look, mm -hmm. this is how you are, and there's nothing that you can do to change it. Whereas what I'm suggesting is something on the lines of, okay, well, perhaps we could explore ways that individuals who experience social anxiety, they could try out this way or try out that way, whether those are behaving ways or thinking ways or behavior modification ways that may lessen their experiences of that anxiety. So let me give a brief example of that. Um, different disorder, same sort of thinking, which is the most effective treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder is exposure and response prevention. So what that would mean is someone who washes their hands 150 times a day 
when they come in for treatment, it's because they would like to stop washing their hands, but when they don't wash their hands, they feel incredibly anxious. And part of that treatment might be identifying some of the thoughts involved that contribute to their hand-washing behavior, like, oh, I may catch this deadly disease, so on and so forth. And them just thinking about it often isn't enough to make a change. However, if they begin a process of actually touching door handles and trash cans and not washing their hands, over time they can learn that, you know what, this anxiety that I feel after I touch these things will go away on its own. It's not actually that dangerous. That would be different than saying, look, you've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, and what that means is that your brain is a particular way, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Now, we can give you some drugs that will maybe make your experience less distressful, but this is how you are. So I think the important distinction there really orbits around what's possible for us in a given set of circumstances. How much can we change features of our experience in a way that's empowering for us as opposed to what are we going to be subject to? So we're not going to think away gravity, but we can, in essence, move away from other forms of pathology that would manifest in obsessive compulsive disorder. Exactly, exactly. There are so many situations like that. The example you gave with obsessive compulsive, it sounds in a certain way like the person has a habit of thinking a certain way about the germs. And what you're doing is breaking that habit by getting them to take a different course of action and then seeing what the consequences of those actions are. And then after a while, when they see that the consequence is not uh, dangerous or deadly, then it begins to integrate with their emotions and they don't feel as anxious anymore about it. Mm -hmm, Exactly. And what popped up for me when you gave that description was that process takes time. And maybe one of the reasons that it takes time is related to the way in which thinking is rooted in our biology. I don't know. What I do know is when I've treated individuals with obsessive compulsive disorder, from the minute they walk in and begin describing the symptoms, I'm able to draw on the theoretical and clinical literature, which not only conceptualizes what they're experiencing, but also suggests to me the way in which I can interact with them that make changes. And when I go through a process of psychoeducation with them, where I'm describing to them ways of understanding their experience, It's very common for the clients to, they believe I'm like a mind reader. And I'm not, I'm not a mind reader. It's just what they're experiencing is known. And when I explain to them the process of change, when I say to them, one of the things that we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be identifying the types of situations that make you anxious. And then we're going to be throwing you into those situations one step at a time they can understand conceptually what I'm telling them. So when I, when I explain to them some of the features of conditioning that take place, so I might say something along the lines of, well, listen, here's a problem. The problem is every time that you experience some anxiety related to washing your hands or getting some germs, you go and wash your hands. And that's a problem because you now have forgotten that that anxiety that you've experienced will go away on its own. 
you've positively reinforced that behavior because after you wash your hands, you feel a lot better. That's that habit breaking component. Mm -hmm. And my point there is that it's not enough for them to conceptually understand the process. They have to actually do it. And a good way of explaining that is I had a friend in high school who typed with two fingers. She typed with her pointer fingers and she knew that it was slower than, than typing with all of her fingers and would sometimes complain about how long it would take to type her papers. And I would point out, well, you should just learn how to use all of your fingers. And no part of her didn't get that, yep, if you have eight fingers and your thumbs typing instead of just two, you'll be able to get more keystrokes per minute, you'll have less time writing papers. That conceptual understanding doesn't translate into what it's like to actually have the muscle memory involved in typing. And I don't know the way in which that necessarily plays in or out of our conversation of neuroessentialism and emergence and downward causation, but it's something that's really important for me because I have a lot of clients who come in and it seems to me that they believe that just thinking differently is going to make a difference. And that's not how I've seen it play out. They need to, they do need to think differently. And those new ways of thinking need to be combined with new ways of behaving. And that seems to be what really does the trick. So what you're saying is that your thoughts always have to be related to your actions or else they're not going to have the same effect on your whole self that you want it to have. And certainly not on your emotional self. That's what I've seen and that's what the clinical literature suggests. So what do you think in the long run about this neuroessentialistic point of view? Do you think it should be thrown out or adapted? It doesn't sound like it's really helping people get better. Of course, if we find out that whatever is happening mentally is caused by bacteria, that's one thing. But with these other disorders, what do you think we should be doing with this theory? Is, mm. it, is it a useful theory or not? Well, I think that the idea from a neuroessentialist perspective is, well, fundamentally, it's bacteria, so to say, all the way down. It's just we don't know what it is yet. So it's not necessarily bacteria, but it's neurons firing in a bad way, so on and so forth. Um, and my approach to that is I don't think that that's likely, and at the same time, maybe at some point in the future, that will be the case. What I do know is that right now, that way of approaching things is not helping anyone. And even the proponents of neuroessentialism agree with that. And in addition to not helping anyone now, it seems that there's real reasons to believe that it can be harmful because of the way that it seems to channel people into an essentialist way of understanding themselves. So this is just how I am. I can't change how I am. And what I would hope is that in the future, there's going to be more recognition of the power of, for instance, some form of understanding top-down causation, some form of understanding how by identifying and changing the way that we think and behave, we can influence in a powerful way the way that we feel. And along those lines... It's nice that there's been as much critical commentary and pushback in relationship to RDoc uh, as there has been. And nevertheless, 
RDoC still exists and it's still churning away. And now the research juggernaut that it is appears to have this tendency of, it, you know, if you stand in the way, you can just be marginalized or straight up run over. And that's a little bit concerning to me. One thing that's curious for me to know is most of the clinicians that I've talked to, not researchers, but clinicians, don't even know what RDoC is. And that is a bit concerning to me because they will be, or at least future clinicians, will be influenced by the type of research that's produced because there's an insistence that what we do be at least in some way evidence-based. And so at some level, at some time, there are going to be influences. And that's a little bit concerning to me. And I do want to say one more quick thing about that, which is I gave a presentation on neuroessentialism at the Minnesota Psychological Association uh, this past April. And it was curious because during the Q&A period, I was getting positive remarks from the psychiatrists that were attending it. And a lot of pushback from the psychologists, which seems like it would be the opposite. The reason that that pushback was there was in clinical psychology, there's a big emphasis on the idea of a biopsychosocial model of emotional distress. And the idea of a biopsychosocial model is we want to be as comprehensive as we can in understanding what contributes to someone experiencing a mental disorder. And so we're going to look at everything. We're going to look at their biology, and we're going to look at their psychology, and we're going to look at their social environment, and we're going to try and integrate all of those components into a comprehensive picture of the ideology of their disorder. And I don't, in, in principle, I'm not opposed to that. The way that I began and tried to address that was I first gave an example of the woman brought into the ER, and my point there is, look, you don't need any psychological understanding to understand why she's having grandiose delusions. In fact, emphasizing the psychological opponent is just going to be a waste of time. You should just be getting her the antibiotics as quickly as possible, much less start doing family therapy with her. At the same time, I presented my favorite example of the relevance of clinical work, which is something along these lines. A junior psychiatrist approaches his mentor and says, look, I've been working with this gentleman for more than a year now, and uh, I, I'm not making any progress. He's just really, really depressed. Do you want to see him? And so the, the, the mentor, senior psychiatrist, says, yeah, I'll, I'll see him. And so the man comes to meet him, and he's an elderly man, um, somewhere around 75. And as the psychiatrist learns more about him, what he finds out is that about two years ago, this man's wife of 50 plus years died. And he's just really struggled to recover from that. So his days are pretty bleak. He still feels a lot of pain, a lot of emptiness, a lot of sadness, a lot of hopelessness. So a whole laundry list of what the DSM-5 would identify as symptoms of depression. And it's likely, I think, that a lot of those subjective experiences manifest as in this older man's biology. That wouldn't surprise me at all. And yet something seems really wrong with saying, oh, well, this older gentleman is just experiencing a pathology in his biology somehow. And I, I was always been really touched by the way in which um, I read this example, because this is an example from Frankel. And the way he described it was, 
he realized that you know this older man really did have a special marriage with this woman, and that in many ways he didn't want to change that pain because that change is just the flip side of the coin of the man's love. However, what what did suggest itself was he he asked the older man, you know, what do you think that your wife would have felt if you had been the one who died first? And he said he sat back and thought for a minute, a minute, and he said, oh, I. I feel like she would have felt very much like how I feel now, just sad and little energy and, and feeling empty and hopeless. And that's when Frankel suggested, so is it true then that by you bearing that experience now that you've spared her from having to go through that? And according to Frankel, it was as if something just clicked inside of the man. And he got up and never came back. And Frankl's interpretation of that is, now this man has a meaning to his suffering. And the point is, you didn't need to give this man antidepressants. Maybe they would have helped, but you didn't need it. What this man needed was really psychological and, and uh, meaning-based. And it, it's not just that you can get those changes that you were looking for without a biological intervention. It's that it seems that by approaching it from a psychological level, it's something that's closer to the truth of this man's reality. Absolutely. It's interesting. It seemed to me that, and you said as much, that the man's depression was the realistic response to his actual situation. Yes. Because he was, he was missing a tremendous value in his life that had taken up so much of his life. I mean, if he wasn't depressed about this, I think I would have thought that was really weird. Yeah. Yeah. If he had really loved his wife and it seemed like he'd always loved his wife tremendously and she was so much a part of his life and he wasn't depressed after she died, I would think that was then something was wrong. That's what I would think. And Marsha, when when you say that, what's brought to my mind is that is something that I say to my clients all the time. It's something along the lines of I will reflect to them what I feel like they're experiencing. So, you know, you're it seems like you're experiencing this this pain right now associated with this set of circumstances or this set of tension. And then I'll say something along the lines of, you know, and, and this might sound a little bit strange, but I'm actually glad that that's what you're feeling because it makes a lot of sense that that is how you'd be feeling. So you're, you don't have this thing that you want right now and it hurts. And if you weren't feeling that way, then I might be even more concerned because maybe now, exactly. maybe now you're just numb to the entire experience. So exactly, and it's very nice for people to hear that because there tends to be this component of individuals who think that because I'm in pain, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking also that with the older fellow in Frankel's example, Frankel got the older fellow to realize that he actually had a power in the situation. Exactly that he didn't realize that he had. And that was the power to keep his wife from being in pain. And when I hear that, it's what I took from Frankel's whole approach to, to psychotherapy, which is the essential component in psychotherapy for people experiencing chronic distress is to find meaning in their circumstances. And for Frankel, as far as I've read him, the point of meaning is that you always have the option to transcend your circumstances, and that's the essential feature of being a human. Mm-hmm. Well, that's quite a, an inspiring story, I think. 
that a 75-year-old man who'd lost his wife after 50 years and was extremely depressed could walk out of Frankel's office actually feeling empowered. Yeah. I've told that story many, many times, and I still have to hold back tears a little bit every time I retell it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. I, and I think it's a wonderful way to illustrate the power of the psychological side of our life, that the mind and, and our ability to do things with our mind uh, can make such a powerful difference in our life. I was wondering if there was anything else you wanted to say about your paper or uh, the ideas in it? Um, I don't know, Marsha, if this would be useful. I mean, I think that in general we, we covered what I convey in the article. The one thought that came to my mind was it it may be useful for listeners to have uh, just a brief description of the way in which the research literature has concretely identified the way in which essentialist thinking can contribute to prognostic pessimism. And the best example of that that I include in my article is a experimental study by Kemp, Lickle, and Deacon that was completed in 2014. And the way this experimental study went was they had their participants, it was about 75. So they recruited them, and what they had them do was individually come into a room where one of the researchers' uh, assistants wearing a, a white lab coat took a swab of their mouth. And um, all of these individuals were individuals who had experienced some symptoms of depression. And after taking the swab from their mouth, he left the room and um, telling the participant, well, I'm going to conduct a test. And then came back with a printout with a little graph that showed either that their serotonin levels were within normal ranges or that their serotonin levels were dramatically deficient, suggesting a chemical imbalance. And after they had conducted this test, they had them fill out some assessment tools designed to measure these individuals' beliefs that they would be likely to get better as time passed. And they also measured the types of interventions these individuals believed would be effective in treating their symptoms of depression. And what they found was that the individuals who had been given results indicating a chemical imbalance thought they were much less likely to believe that they will get better. And they were much more likely to favor uh, medication as opposed to psychotherapy. Now, of course, all the tests were fake. There is no swab test that we can do to identify a chemical imbalance. But their point was, is that the belief that what's causing the symptoms is a chemical imbalance has real tangible effects on what people believe in terms of their future and what people believe in terms of what types of avenues are open to them feeling better. So I think that's a really a great example of illustrating concretely how some of these ideas can manifest. Thanks for, for bringing it up because it certainly shows the practical implications of ideas and how powerful they can be in your life. I want to thank you for spending time talking to us about these ideas, uh, so much time, and I think you were very enlightening in what's going on in clinical psychology. It's, it's in some respects a little frightening because if these neuroessentialist ideas gain too much ascendancy and too much political and, in effect, monetary power, 
it can be very detrimental to people who who actually need psychological help instead. Right. Instead of they'll want to be just pushing drugs on everybody. But hopefully there's enough backlash about that. I mean, I certainly see people complaining about this thing all the time in publications and things like that. So hopefully it won't get to that point. And, and I hope that your paper adds to the voices out there that are arguing against that point of view. Mm. So thank you very much for being on the show and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime about this. Yeah, thanks, Marsha. I had a lot of fun. Good, good. I did too. If you like this podcast, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or even Yelp. And you can tell your friends about it. You can mention it on Facebook or other social media. And you can support it by contributions at our website, thegreatconnections.org. Thanks for listening, and please join us next time. Thank you.